0: Hello and welcome to 1867 and all that. Well, sort of welcome to 1867 and all that. In fact, today we have a special feature where instead of our regular ongoing series, we're going to have a special guest podcast episode from another great Canadian history podcast, Cool Canadian History. If you don't listen to Cool Canadian History, then I definitely suggest you take a listen. Host David Boris always has a new and fascinating story each week. And today we're going to put a sample episode into our feed for you to check it out we'll be back in a couple of days with our regularly scheduled programming i mean it's already 1837 in our world and we're moving forward steadily until then take a listen to this a cool Canadian history. I'm your host, David Boris. In the cold, desolate tundra of the Arctic, one of Canada's most famous manhunts took place. A hunt for a man no one really knew, a man searching for deep isolation in some of the most isolated regions in our country, and a man who was willing to kill to preserve that isolation. This predilection for violence resulted in a gunfight that then turned into a chase across the frozen north as this man defied the odds for a short time in a land where the odds heavily favored Mother Nature. This is Season 5, Episode 11, The Mad Trapper, of Rat River. This week's book recommendation is the 1989 book by Dick North called Trackdown, which is probably the most comprehensive analysis of the story of The Mad Trapper. Although, for fun... I'm going to also recommend you watch Charles Bronson's 1981 film Death Hunt and listen to B.C. folk rock artist Devin Coyote's song The Ballad of Trapper John. Okay. It was an unusually hot July day in 1931 when a man calling himself Albert Johnson wandered into Fort McPherson. Now, Fort McPherson lies in the northwest corner of the Northwest Territories. Johnson had traveled to the location on a rickety old raft, which he guided down the Peel River, a slow, winding river that flowed through the ancient lands of the tetlit gwichin peoples northwards into the small settlement of Fort McPherson. Johnson beached his raft, and wandered into the local trading post, where it became obvious to the man in charge of the post, Factor Bill Douglas, that this man had arrived from somewhere far off in the wilderness. Johnson remained in Fort McPherson for ten days, ordering and preparing supplies to return to the wilderness. While Johnson didn't say much, Douglas did learn from the man that his plan was to head up to Rat River, a small river branching off from the Peel farther north in order to set up a trapping camp. There were a couple things that seemed a bit odd to Douglas about this Johnson fellow. Firstly, Johnson was carrying an unusually large amount of cash, Douglas estimated several thousand dollars, which was quite a bit of money for anyone, notwithstanding a local trapper carrying it all on his person. As well, Johnson's outfit didn't seem like the type of outfit a man wore who was planning on heading out into the bush for a long period of time. Simply put, something was off about this Johnson character. It was on day nine of Johnson's stay in Fort McPherson that Constable Edgar Millen of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrived. Millen was at his detachment, 30 miles to the southeast, when a couple locals brought word that an odd stranger had arrived in McPherson. Millen was particularly interested in the fact Johnson was going into Rat River Country, but had apparently never been there before. The waters of the Peel heading to the Rat were difficult to navigate, and it was easy for someone to get lost, especially someone new to the country. Millen decided to chat with Johnson. Millen found Johnson loading his gear onto his raft, yet Johnson seemed quite reluctant to talk and also appeared to be in quite a hurry. In fact, Millen thought Johnson had a Scandinavian accent, Swedish specifically. When Millen asked Johnson how he had gotten to Fort McPherson, Johnson told Millen an entirely different story, than the one Johnson told Factor Bill Douglas. Millen was now suspicious. Why would this odd stranger lie to him? Millen recommended Johnson get a guide and even offered to sell him a trapping license. But Johnson refused. The conversation ended abruptly, and every instinct of Millen's said that Johnson was not the man he claimed to be. Nonetheless, Millen wished him luck, and Johnson was on his way. It wasn't until December that Millen heard about this man again. In fact, a number of local First Nation trappers complained to Millen that a white man had failed to get through the Rat River Rapids and instead had wintered at the mouth of the Rat River Canyon. This spot was a well-known spot because during the Yukon Gold Rush in the late 19th century, many a prospector had wintered there after being shipwrecked by the Rat River Rapids. The place was ominous. Its nickname was, in fact, Destruction City. Johnson had survived so far at Destruction City by destroying local trap lines and setting up his own. Effectively, he was illegally trapping over territory already claimed by local indigenous trappers. But Millen was even more concerned when the trappers next told him that when they went to talk to Johnson, he threatened to shoot them on the spot. Johnson was armed, and he seemed willing to use violence. Millen thus ordered his junior constable, a man named A.W. King, to go and check in on Johnson. He wanted to see if King could get a better sense of what was happening on the ground at Destruction City. With King went Joe Bernard, a local indigenous tracker who was often hired by the police. The two of them traveled for three days on dog sleds, crossing 80 kilometers of frozen tundra to finally arrive at Johnson's half-buried cabin in the snow. Now, while Johnson's cabin was rudimentary, something like 8 by 10 feet, a roof reinforced by poles and walls made of sod and earth, it did include one weird feature, rifle slits. While Bernard stayed with the dogs, King approached the cabin, calling Johnson's name. You see, King saw smoke rising from the stovepipe chimney. King and Johnson actually exchanged some words but Johnson refused to open the door. King knew if he wanted entrance into the cabin, he would need a warrant. And this he could only get from the rarely sober inspector in charge of the RCMP district, a man named A.N. Eames. Eames was in Aklavik. Aklavik was the regional administrative center for the territory. It was about another 100 kilometers north of Destruction City. Now, Johnson wouldn't open the door... So King had no choice. He traveled to Aklavik, received the warrant, despite Eames' frustration at what he deemed an inconsequential trapper. King returned to the cabin days later. However, this time, King brought backup. Constable R.G. McDowell and another guide from the Lusho nation, Lazarus Sicilius. When they arrived, King ordered Lazarus to scout around the back of the cabin in case Johnson tried an escape. McDowell hid behind a spruce bush on a nearby riverbank to cover King as he approached the front of the cabin. Once again, King got to the door, and once again, King called for Johnson. This time, though, he informed Johnson that he had a warrant, and if Johnson didn't open the door and let him in, He was going to kick it through. No response came. King gave the door a little shove with his shoulder, and just as he was about to push on through, Johnson opened up with his shotgun from the other side of the door. King was hit in the chest, and the blast sent him backwards, reeling onto his side. McDowell then opened fire from the riverbank, and King began to frantically crawl to cover. King made it, and then Lazarus arrived shortly thereafter, but with King bleeding so bad, McDowell made the call to return to the nearest town for medical help. Through a swirling ground storm and minus 45 degrees Celsius weather, they pushed their dog teams hard, finally arriving with numb extremities at Aklavik's Anglican Mission Hospital. It was discovered that King had received a stomach wound, one that would normally cause peritonitis and thus a painful death. However, King was in great shape, and luckily it had only a light meal earlier in the morning. The combination of these two factors, plus McDowell and Lazarus making the 80-mile trip to Aklavit in near record-breaking time, resulted in King surviving his wounds. But word of Johnson shooting an officer of the law spread quickly. Folks, a reminder... If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while well, Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations. And every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Reaction in Aklavik was swift. Inspector Eames, the same man who felt bothered by the concern over a supposed inconsequential trapper, now formed a posse to return and apprehend Johnson. Eight men, including Eames, McDowell, and Lazarus, all descended upon Johnson's cabin. They were armed, and they were ready for trouble. Eames called out to Johnson, saying that Johnson needed to give himself up but Eames was met with silence. The posse thus cautiously approached the cabin when Johnson suddenly opened fire. A wild west shootout erupted in Destruction City. Incredibly, Johnson was able to hold out all day and into the night. His cabin was well fortified, and it was obvious that Johnson had every approach covered and was well armed. In a last-ditch effort, the posse used dynamite to blow open the front door and attempt to rush through and capture Johnson, but Johnson was able to drive them back with gunfire. He had fortified himself further within the interior of the cabin, and the destruction of the front door did nothing to remove Johnson from his advantageous position. Eames and the posse thus returned to Aklavik, shocked at their inability to capture Johnson. However, they were not going to give up. The posse gathered more supplies, gathered even more men, and then returned to the cabin on January 17th. This time, Johnson was gone. Inside the cabin, they found that Johnson had turned the floor of it into a series of small, single-man foxholes, effectively protecting him from any gunfire or explosions from the outside. For days, Eames' posse thus scoured the area near the cabin, in blizzard conditions, and temperatures as cold as minus 55 degrees. On the 28th of January, two trackers found Johnson's trail, but decided not to close on their prey until they had the police and the weapons with them. They thus returned on the 29th, this time with Constable Millen, the very first RCMP officer to talk to Johnson way back in July. As the party approached the suspected location of Johnson, more shots rang out. Johnson once again opened fire on his pursuers, and the pursuers opened fire back. Millen led the way, pressing closer and closer to Johnson's camouflaged position, until a single shot fired out and Millen spun around. Millen had been hit. Sadly, Millen died shortly after, and Johnson escaped again. By February, word had gotten out throughout the Northwest Territories that an armed and dangerous man had shot two police officers, killing one of them, and was still on the run. A territory-wide manhunt was now launched. Several teams were put together to track in different directions, while even an airplane was brought in, piloted by Captain W.R. May. May was a World War I ace who was, interestingly, shot down by the famous German ace Baron von Richtofen, the Red Baron. May, in fact, became the first pilot in Canadian history to ever assist in a manhunt. By 11th February, May had spotted what he believed were Johnson's tracks. It seemed that Johnson had crossed a ridgeline that local First Nations said no man could survive on foot. Most people now believed they would simply find Johnson dead, killed by the elements, Cloud coverage and snow kept preventing May from returning to the sky, however, but he was able to find more tracks on another clear day, this on the 15th of February. However, these tracks then merged with other tracks made by a moving caribou herd, and the trail went cold. The RCMP, however, continued their hunt. On the 16th of February, they found where Johnson's tracks had re-emerged from that of the caribou herd and kept up doubling their pursuit. At 3 p.m. that day, they finally spotted Johnson. He was not only alive, but was moving incredibly fast over some of the most difficult terrain on the continent. At several points, Johnson stopped to fire back at his pursuers. He even hit an army signalman that had joined the hunt, but Johnson was running out of space and time. Eames was leading the main group, and they were able to trap him in some deep snow near a frozen river. Eames once again offered Johnson the chance to give himself up, and Johnson replied with gunfire. This time, however, Eames's posse did not miss when they returned fire, Johnson was riddled with bullets and died almost immediately. A violent, physically demanding, multi-week chase through the Arctic tundra had finally come to an end. But the story didn't end there. Albert Johnson was obviously not his name, and the RCMP put out a call to find out who he might be, They even sent photos of his face to newspapers to see if anyone would recognize or could recognize the man. Hundreds of tips came in. He was claimed, for instance, by hundreds of women who deemed him a father, husband, brother, or son who went missing. Other tips pinned him as an escaped murderer, a criminal on the run, a World War I sniper, and even an ex-provincial policeman. The RCMP sent his fingerprints to Washington, to Stockholm, to London, chasing any lead they could, but nothing pointed definitively to who this man was. One of the more credible stories to come out was that he was a man named Arthur Nelson, who was trapping along the Nelson River and moved northwards into the Yukon around the same time that Albert Johnson appears. The description, temperament, and outdoor skills seemed to match with this Nelson figure. Rumors had it that Nelson may have killed his trapping partner and thus went on the run, and Johnson was actually found with two pieces of gold bridgework that were not his own, thus lending credence to the theory that they belonged to his murdered trapping partner. Soon, however, even this credible story became subsumed by more romantic tales of what people were now calling the Mad Trapper of Rat River. For decades after, numerous theories on who the man was were posited in television shows, songs, books, and even movies. Perhaps the most famous Albert Johnson tale told in mass media was Charles Bronson's 1981 film, Death Hunt, a highly fictionalized portrayal of the hunt for Johnson, where Bronson plays a sympathetic Johnson and the RCMP are portrayed as the bad guys. 2007 saw the latest major attempt to solve this mystery. A forensic team working for the Discovery Channel exhumed Johnson's body and conducted tests on his remains to attempt to find out who he was. Some further light was shed on the mystery due to these tests. For instance, that he was either from Midwest America or Northern Scandinavia, which for someone who knows nothing about forensic analysis seems a rather unusual conclusion. The tests also found that he was indeed in his 30s when he died. DNA tests also ruled out the Arthur Nelson theory, as well as another theory that pinned him as a man named Sigvald Haskell from Norway, who had immigrated to Canada and then moved into the wilderness of one of BC's west coast islands to avoid conscription in World War I. Despite these and other minor contributions to the case made during this discovery channel special the mystery of the identity of the mad trapper of rat river remains unsolved to this very day i want to thank you all for listening today a reminder You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. And you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris. That's at B-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool.